Recovery Elevator, episode 30. This is not an intellectual problem. This is not something that you can solve the way I would solve a business problem. Welcome to Recovery Elevator. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is a special podcast. The reason why? According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year and four days. That's right, Recovery Elevator. I got to say a big thank you to you all for helping me get to the one-year milestone. If you're not there yet, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's great. You got to get here. The feeling was amazing. In fact, I can't even explain it. The morning of, I was in Dillon, Montana after a Josh Turner concert. I was at a coffee shop around 8.15 in the morning. I opened up Facebook and I saw the flood of personal posts, messages, shout outs from the private recovery elevator accountability group. And I started to tear up in this small coffee shop in Dillon, Montana, where I'm not even joking you, right outside the coffee shop window was a horse, a carriage, a family, and they were all going through the drive through window getting coffee. I love Montana, despite the fact I'm deathly allergic to horses and alcohol. Good thing I've never combined the two. But if I start drinking again, I'll find myself on top of a horse, drunk, cruising down Main Street. And that's reason number 782 why I have to stay sober. So I talk about getting outside my comfort zone in this podcast a lot. That whole concept, which is part of my solution of how I made it to one year of sobriety, has been extremely important to me. And I talk about it so much, I decided on that day, September 7th, 2015, to write a post on Facebook. This is my own personal Facebook page. I do a lot of posts on the Recovery Elevator Facebook page and the Recovery Elevator Private Accountability Group, but I haven't been that vocal on my own personal Facebook page about my sobriety. So if I'm gonna talk the talk, I gotta walk the walk. I really got outside my comfort zone again on September 7th, and I put this exact post up on my personal Facebook page. Today marks one year of sobriety. I had my last drink of alcohol exactly 365 days ago. I've been an alcoholic for about a decade, and the shame and guilt associated with the stigma of being an alcoholic nearly caused me to ride my elevator to the grave in 2014. Alcoholism and addiction are diseases, and that's not a debate according to the American Medical Association. If you're struggling with addiction, there is no reason to be ashamed, and you're far from alone. I started a podcast called Recovery Elevator that was a tool to create accountability for myself, and it has landed me at one year sober. There is no way I would have made it here without your help, inspiration, and support of so many others. Thank you, Molly Churchill, Mark Churchill, Kelly Addison, Brady Efting, Peter Bush, Sean Benderly, Travis Eby, Ben Fahar, Justin Long, Paul Scarsega, Molly Fredenberg, Pete Savine, Christine Kerbogi, and Nathan Parsegian. But really, thank you to everybody. Thank you to everybody who's listened to this podcast. Thank you for everybody who's even listened the first five seconds of this podcast because that has helped me get to one year sober. Now, that was a scary part of posting it on Facebook. It's always scary when another wave of people, especially within your semi-close network as Facebook can be, find out that you're an alcoholic. But what happened next was astounding. Within 35 minutes, I had 200 and something likes. By the end of the day, I had 591 likes with 92 comments. 
I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, seriously, I put up posts with me and my standard poodle Ben on killer hikes. We're lucky if we get 20 likes. What that tells me is people are cheering for me. They're rooting for me and they're proud of me. And it's not just me. I encourage you to do the same thing, although incredibly terrifying. When you reach a milestone in sobriety, whether it be one week, create accountability. Throw it up there on Facebook. You'll be surprised with the results. A lot of people out there probably already know you're struggling with alcohol, but they will be very happy to see that you're addressing the issue. And even though it's one month, three months, six months, or a year, they're still going to be really darn proud of you. And it's also a pretty good way for you to weed out those friends who aren't really going to be your friends in your new chosen life of sobriety. Oh yeah, here's another emotion I felt for about a decade was solidarity. I felt so alone for being an alcoholic, right? I thought I was the only one. And if I go on ignoring my addiction called alcoholism, I eventually will begin to feel like I'm the only one and that I should be able to drink normal because shit, I'm the only one that's an alcoholic. But that is so far from the truth. In fact, out of those 92 comments that were visible underneath my post, I got another five to six messages from people that I knew very well that were also alcoholics. And of those five to six, I say five to six because one of those could be taken as them semi coming out of the closet, shall I say, or admitting that they might have a problem with alcoholism. So of those five to six, half of them were in recovery and half of those were people saying, hey, I think I have a problem with alcohol. What should I do? Now, I don't claim to be a professional in sobriety or am I trying to create a program called Recovery Elevator? But I chatted with those people. I told them, go to an AA meeting, listen to the podcast, join the Recovery Elevator private accountability group. I told them about other podcasts doing similar things that I'm doing. There are so many vast resources, but the key is you are not alone and I'm not alone. I reconnected with a couple really cool people that I went to high school with. I had no idea that we'd both gone through this whole struggle. We both have this communal disease, but we had no idea because for some reason we feel like we have to be anonymous about a recovery. I wonder where I got that from. So on today's podcast, we've got John, who's an alcoholic who's been sober and got sober without AA. But the topic of today's podcast is my story. I had a couple people email me saying, hey, We've heard snippets of your story in the interviews, but why don't you give your story? So the topic of the next three podcasts will be my story. And again, this podcast is not about me. My story is not more important than yours, more tragic or less tragic. It's just a story. To tell you the truth, they're all the same. We drink, we can't stop, we get our acid kicked by alcohol, but the difference is not everybody's story ends the same. A lot of people ride these things to institutions. A lot of people ride these things to the grave. And the lucky ones, what I'm thankful every day for is I put myself in that category. Us lucky ones are recovering. We're sober. For some crazy reason, in 2015, I've got a podcast that helps me stay sober. I would be absolutely screwed had I lived in Montana 200 years ago and I was an alcoholic. Horses everywhere. No podcast no internet for podcasting, and Butte, Montana was the capital of Montana? Ugh. So as you hear my story, I can't stress this enough. Listen to the similarities and not the differences. 
It is so easy to hear a story and be like, wait a second, my name is Judy. It's not Paul. I'm not an alcoholic. Duh. Or be like, yeah, I am a guy. I'm 33 and I do coincidentally live in Montana, but my name is Rick. It's not Paul. Seriously. Don't kid yourself. Be honest to yourself. Listen to the similarities and not the differences. So saying that, my name is Paul, last name Churchill. I'm 33 years old. I was born in Salt Lake City and lived there till I was 12 years old. Growing up in the heart of Mormon land, which is in Sandy, Utah, the concept of alcohol was strangely foreign. When my parents would have a party and they would go to the liquor store to buy alcohol, we would drive like 25 to 30 minutes away. Probably just because the state laws to get a liquor license, I don't know. But it seems like nowadays, there's a liquor store within throwing distance of every corner. I remember growing up on a Saturday or Sunday after my dad would mow the lawn, do some yard work. He would come in, read Time or National Geographic with a Budweiser. That old, classic, good old American beer Budweiser. I remember on a couple occasions, I asked my dad if I could have a sip. He says, sure, go for it. Had a sip, about lost my lunch. That shit was terrible. He laughed. I don't even think he said, you know, you have to wait till you're 21 so you can really start drinking. Like, hey, teaching moment here. He just said, yeah, have a sip. Tasted it, and it tasted like shit. Then I moved to Edwards, Colorado at the age of 12. Edwards is about 13 miles west of Vail, Colorado. That was a completely different world. I went from the very tight and strict land of Mormons to the liberal, radical lifestyle of the mountains. A lot of the parents there were ski bums. They partied their asses off, and guess what? Their kids did the same thing. I heard my first F-bomb. I saw my first person who wasn't white, and you could really say I joined the real world. I wasn't in the bubble of Mormon land, Sandy, Utah anymore. And that's when the trepidation started. I was so far behind those kids. I had to learn a whole new vocabulary, including of words that started with F, shit, damn, see, all these other stuff. There were fights in the hallways. It was terrifying. I was really just an awkward kid from Mormon land coming into a resort town with a hell of a lot of money, a large Hispanic population. Oh yeah, and people were dating at this age. I was still terrified of girls at age 12. And 13, when I was a teenager, still terrified of girls. So it was the spring of my eighth grade year. I liked to skateboard. I was pretty good at it. I was with two friends and one of the guy's older brother. We decided, well, they decided to shoulder tap. And of course, I wanted to be included in the festivities, so I went along. We get a bottle of vodka, and we head to my friend's house. We go to the basement. Keep in mind, his parents are still upstairs. And we formulate a plan to drink this bottle of vodka. We ask my buddy's brother how to do this or, or what's going to happen to us. And he's like, I don't really know. I've never done this either. So you've got four rookies. But we did know that if you consume too much alcohol, which probably would be likely since we've never done it before, we might throw up. So we had a designated cardboard box for the throw up. I know it's kind of gross, but just hang on with me here. We also assume that when you take a shot or drink any alcohol, it's instantaneous, you feel buzzed or drunk. So while we're playing Mario Kart, old school NES that is, and drinking our mixed Mountain Dews and vodka, after our first drink, we all look around at each other and be like, you feeling anything? And no, none of us really felt much. I felt a little different. I guess that was a buzz, but I definitely didn't feel really drunk. So we kept going. After rounds two and three, within a span of about 10 minutes, we looked around. I was like, well, I feel a little something, but not that much. So we just kept going. And we probably should have stopped after round three, 
considering four people who had never drank before mixed drinks, you can see where this is going. We had about seven or eight mixed drinks each. And then finally, it was like, well, I'm not drunk, but I do feel a little, oh, shit. And it hit all four of us like a ton of bricks. But I remember the feeling, focusing in on Mario Kart. My thumbs rapidly navigating the keypad, making every turn, shooting turtles at the other cars, dominating the race. Looking back, there's something wrong with this picture because there's not a chance in hell I was navigating Rainbow Road or whatever or whatever track that was while drunk. I'm sure I was just running straight into the brick walls, firing turtles into the wall, backfiring and hitting myself. But something felt so good. This fear, this trepidation, this anxiety, this insecurity of being the new kid in a whole new city and state, it was gone. While playing Mario Kart, I gave this whole joke thing a try. I tried cracking some jokes, and guess what? They laughed. My friend's older brother, who was a cool kid in the group, I look back at it now and I'm like, dude, you're a sophomore in high school. Why the hell are you hanging out with your little brother and his eighth grade friends? But I felt part of the group. And it was this magical substance called alcohol that allowed me to feel that way. So I was not a champion with my alcoholic. And after about three races, we ran around, we wrestled, and down goes number one. Getting dizzy, hands, knees to the floor. He throws up in a puke box. Now, the puke box, I know this is incredibly disgusting, but just bear with me. This is part of the story. The throw-up box was one of those small boxes that's only like two inches high that holds a 24-pack of Coca-Cola cans. And so he throws up in the box. Five minutes later, friend number two does. Five minutes later, my friend's brother does. And I'm thinking I'm Joe Schmo, cool drinking machine here, who's outlasted all these guys. I'm the only one that hasn't thrown up yet. Could have been that I was destined to be an alcoholic. I had the highest tolerance. Who the hell knows? Maybe they drank more than I did. But I was number four, and I was literally the straw that broke the camel's back. Because my throw up, number one, it overflowed the cardboard box. And number two, cardboard and liquid, it doesn't match. The box basically disintegrated, and all the throw up just went everywhere on the floor. The smell of the throw up went up through the vents, And it only took about 15 minutes for the parents to come down and find four kids passed out. One kid was halfway in the pile of, you get the point, and they were probably just like, oh shit. I remember lying there passed out. My arm was on a furnace pipe and I was thinking to myself, this is so cool. I know it's really hot and I think my arm is getting burnt, but I don't feel anything. I was mesmerized with alcohol. I was funny. I could feel no pain. I felt like I was invincible. Bring it on world. Or bring it on mom to come pick me up in about 15 minutes. So I had to go up, call my mom, tell her what happened. She came pick me up. The next day, my mom and I went for a walk. She didn't really lay into me like I thought she would. She's a smart woman. She knows that I'm going to drink. And while we were walking, I didn't really feel hungover, but I definitely felt strange. It could have been the massive burn on my right forearm. Could have been the fact that I got shit-faced for the first time. And now looking back with this podcast, what I know, a little bit of THIQ, which I talked about in episode 29, was deposited into my brain because I'm an alcoholic. I have always been an alcoholic because I've had the genetic predisposition to become an alcoholic. But I drank normally for about five to seven years. But every time that I got drunk, because my genetic makeup was that of an alcoholic, A little bit of this substance called THIQ formed in my brain. 
more and more of it formed, which later made it almost impossible to stop drinking after I had started. So I was in love with alcohol. But after the walk with my mom, school ending, summer camp, I just didn't have that many experiences to shoulder tap with the boys out skateboarding. So I naturally just didn't drink for a long time. My freshman year of high school, I think I drank just a couple times, but only a couple beers at a time. I never had the opportunity to experience the elation that I felt the first time that I drank. At the end of my sophomore year, my brother took me to a house party where there was a bunch of seniors, bunch of juniors, and only a couple of us cool underclassmen. Funny thing is, I think my mom made my brother take me to that party. Thank you, mom, and thank you, Mark. I remember chatting to this hot senior chick, drunk, and I said, check this out. I did a handstand against the wall, didn't knock off any pictures. I pulled it off, and she actually said, hey, that was pretty cool. It probably wasn't that cool, but it felt amazing. Point is, when I was drinking, I could do anything. Talk to girls, be funny, do handstands and pull it off. But obviously, I'm not that drunk. I was still a normal drinker. It would take me four or five beers to get wasted, but I loved it. Now, a bit about me in high school, I was kind of your all-American kid. If there was a club or a sport, I was in it. I was captain of the football team my senior year. I even went to Las Vegas with jazz band my senior year. I was president of FBLA, then student council. I was a news anchor on the school news program. I had a mobile DJ business on the side. I was in a band. I played ice hockey. I ran track. I did ski team. And I played football. My plate was full. Not to mention, I graduated with a 3.54. Number 22 in my class. We only had like 115 in our class. But still, pretty darn cool. And again, I was a normal drinker all through high school. But looking back, the signs were there. I had a fascination with alcohol really ever since I took that first drink. And here are a couple examples. During my senior year of high school, I was walking down the busy pedestrian street, Bridge Street in Vail, Colorado. I saw a full keg outside of a restaurant, but there are hundreds of people walking by. I said, if that keg is here at night, I said, I'm coming back here with a hockey bag. We are going to put that keg in this bag and walk out of Bridge Street where there are hundreds of people with a keg on our backs. So we come back around 8 p.m., make a half circle around this keg so people can't see, put the keg in a bag, put it on my shoulder, and I start walking. The problem is kegs are like 150 pounds, or it feels like that. I think I made it 20 paces, and I weighed about 150 pounds at that time as well, and we had to trade off. Probably looked pretty weird with four dudes carrying hockey equipment on their shoulder, and they can only walk 25 paces with it. Anyways, we didn't even have a tap afterward, but we still had this obsession Well, this was all led by me to find a way to get the beer out of this keg. The way to do it, we found a metal rod, lifted the keg upside down, pushed the rod inside the hole in the keg, got a huge Tupperware bucket. So all the beer just fell out of the keg into the Tupperware bucket. And we simply just scooped the beer out with a solo cup and drank. Did I mention this was a Tuesday and we had school the next day? Another example would be in the wintertime my senior year. At lunch, we went over to my friend Tim's house. We looked up and saw the liquor cabinet. We looked at each other and said, sure, why not? But to think back, it was probably me saying, hey, Tim, I'm going to open up this cabinet and we're going to drink. So of all the bottles I could have drank, I grabbed a Bacardi 151 bottle. I had no idea what 151 meant. What it means, it's 151 proof, which is basically double as strong as any other hard alcohol. 
So we have like five or six shots, which normally would be enough to get us pretty tipsy. But that's like 10 or 12 shots of Bacardi 151. Get back to math class. Within moments, I realize something is wrong. But I'm thinking, okay, I can ride this one out. I'll be just fine. But guess what happens right after that? The fire alarm goes off. There's like three fire alarms a year. Are you freaking kidding me? It's got to go off right now. So I wobble out of my desk and I fall down a flight of stairs outside. Not a problem though, because it's Vail, Colorado. It was snowy and there was ice everywhere. So my friends and my teacher are like, dude, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, just, just a bunch of snow and ice. I, I, I mean, look at that flight of stairs. There's snow and ice everywhere. Somebody should shovel that. <laughs> and uh, my track coach comes up and he's like, hey, are you going to be okay for the track meet this weekend? He like points to my leg and I'm just like, oh, yeah, coach, I'll, I'll, I'll be good. And he had no idea. But there was always an obsession to drink or find a way to get drunk. Trouble was just on the horizon as well. Here's a story that I never planned on sharing with the podcast, but you've got to be able to laugh at some of these stories. I worked at a golf course, and we used to love hitting golf balls at my house after work. Problem is, I'd only have like five or six golf balls that I'd find in the weeds from the driving range to hit up in the hill behind my house. And then we'd have to go up in the hill and collect the balls. We'd only hit like seven balls, and we'd only retrieve five. You can see the math here. And plus, we have to walk up a hill? Come on. So after a party, I had a great idea. Number one, let's chug two more beers. The second idea, let's go take some golf balls. So we get to the shack where all the golf balls are held, and sure enough, the mother load is in there, a full 55-gallon trash can full of range balls. According to the newspaper, about 1,500. And so with five drunk-ass kids trying to get 1,500 golf balls or a trash can that weighs probably 200 to 300 pounds in your car without spilling one, it's not possible. Maybe if you're sober, it's possible. When you're drunk, not possible. So right there, we spill about 40 to 50 golf balls. And my buddy's Volkswagen Quantum is on the cart path. Cart paths, they're not made for cars. He's running over the lights as we're driving away from this car shack. And there's so many golf balls in the trunk and at the windows that guess what? They're falling out of the trunk and windows. And my buddy who is sitting in the trunk, and we've got the sunroof open, we decided it's going to be a good idea to throw the golf balls at each other while we're driving. And it's actually pretty fun to throw golf balls on the road when you're driving. They bounce forever. So we continued this process until we arrived at my house. We unload all the golf balls. We think the wreckage stops there, but it doesn't. We actually managed to break into the sprinkler room of the golf course, shut off the water, push over one outhouse on the way back, and light the newspapers on fire that were just delivered by the paper man. This is like five in the morning. And I remember looking back, I'm like 100 yards ahead of my friends. I was looking back and I had nothing to do with the outhouse or the mini bonfire in the middle of the road. But I thought to myself, oh, shit, this could be bad. And that's what happened. About two hours later, my mom gets a knock on the door and the sheriff's department was there. Of course, my mom goes to bat for us and says, I have five saints upstairs sleeping. Four of them are in college. One of them is a straight A student in high school. They would never do a thing like this. And we're upstairs in my room going, oh shit, that's a cop downstairs. How the hell did they find us? We come down, and since it's a small town, they didn't put us in the car in handcuffs and take us to the jail right away. We have a chat, and it turns out this is like the Hansel and Gretel story. There was no Sherlock Holmes needed to find out the culprits who took the golf balls. 
This officer, when he arrived at the scene, he found one golf ball. Said, oh, there's another one 20 feet away. There's another one 25 feet away. There's another one six feet away. He continued the process until he landed at my front doorstep. So that's how we were caught. There was a slew of charges against us. Holy crap, we looked like complete villains and hoodlums in the newspaper. Actually, several newspaper articles. At the end of the summer, after the court date, we all got off with a bunch of misdemeanors, felonies avoided, and 10, 12 years down the road, it's actually a pretty good story. But that behavior and that obsession for alcohol and to do things like that while I'm drinking was just a precursor to where it was going. At this point, I was still a normal drinker, but there was always an obsession to find that drink. Oh yeah, I technically never finished my math final my senior year in high school because somebody came and got me out of the class and while we're walking to the office, the kid was like, dude, Paul, there's a police officer down there. And I'm thinking, yeah, no worries. They got the wrong guy, whatever it is. But sure enough, they got the right guy. I got busted for one of the best fake IDs they had ever seen. Yeah, I had spent countless hours finding out a way to make the perfect fake ID. This is when Photoshop was kind of first hitting the scene. I'd also found a way to get the holograms on the cards, actually just by reaching over the desk of the DMV and taking the holograms. I mean, that right there is like a felony. But that's an obsession for alcohol and drove me to literally, when the guy was not looking, reach my hand over the desk and take the slips that, that make IDs. I mean, I'm embarrassed about that, but that's what I did. But I'm still a normal drinker, even till about my sophomore year of college. I remember one of my Christmas break jobs was I was fitting ski boots in a ski shop for like 10 straight hours. And then we would go out and party. And there was this one night in particular. I remember working 10 hours straight, fitting ski boots. Went to a party, party till like six or seven in the morning. We went straight to the ski shop to work, hadn't slept, hadn't showered, and I worked another eight to 10 hours on my knees, fitting kids with ski boots. Sure, it wasn't the most enjoyable days, but I was a normal drinker back then. Plus, I was 19 or 20. And at that age, you can get shit faced the night before and operate heavy machinery the next day. It's wonderful. So you could say the first three and a half years of college, I was a normal drinker, but most of my decisions, where I lived, what I did, how hard I worked at school, how hard I worked towards playing football, mostly revolved around my drinking choices. Partying and socializing with alcohol usually came first. I probably would have been a fantastic Division Three football player had it not have been for alcohol. Actually, I'm going to correct myself. I'm 5'9", 5'8", and 3 quarters. Average speed, average strength. I, I don't think I ever would have been a good football player Division Three, but I would have been better than okay. Maybe kind of good, I'd like to think, but I'll never really know. Because during the game, I was kind of watching the clock, just hoping he would tick down so I could start drinking after the games. So fast forward to the summer before I graduated. I had one more semester left. I had studied abroad in Spain and Mexico. Two of the best semesters of my life. Spain, I learned a ton of Spanish, and I drank a lot of alcohol, still responsibly, well, whatever that means, but still as a normal drinker, I would say. There were snippets in Mexico where I remember going to the liquor store on a Monday and saying, you know what, I should get tequila because there's 75 different types of tequila, that's my favorite drink, I need to do this, it's a Monday, and who cares? Looking back, 
That was my addiction justifying my action. I would look at this massive wall of tequila. And even though I probably shouldn't have been drinking on a Monday night by myself, my addiction had convinced me. But again, it's my own voice talking to me. And I had no idea what this whole alcoholism thing or my addiction thing really was. But my addiction, it was there. And my addiction from then on got the better of me for probably the next decade. That is going to lead me to the Granada pub crawl, which the summer before I graduated, I had so much fun in Granada when I studied abroad that I decided to go back with three other friends and start a pub crawl. I have always been an entrepreneur. When I studied abroad in Spain, I took a trip to Italy for a week. When I was in Rome, I did a pub crawl. Why the hell does Granada not have a pub crawl, I told myself. So guess what? I brought Granada pub crawl. We showed up on a Monday, had our first pub crawl on a Friday. I think there was 45 people on that pub crawl. And that's what went down the entire summer. We ran pub crawls on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Me and three other friends. Smallest pub crawl was, I think, 35. Largest pub crawl was like 75. It was 10 euros a person. Do the math. That's like three to four to five to 600 euros a night for four nights in a row. For four of us, we were raking it in, living in Europe, drinking for free, getting into clubs for free. On our weekends, we rented a car. We went to Portugal. We flew to Amsterdam for a weekend, went to Barcelona. This was like the coolest and best time of my life. But it was this summer that the swing became evident. During the time, I didn't recognize it, of course. But looking back, if I had to pinpoint one time where I would have to say that is where I became an alcoholic, it doesn't happen with one drink. But if that's the time where I'd say, look, at that point, I was an alcoholic. This would be it. After our pub crawls, we would get done probably 3, 4 in the morning. We go back to the apartment and we start hanging out, recapping the evening. I recap the evening with a nightcap. I fill a Dixie cup up with like two or three shots of vodka, put some cranberry juice in it, and shoot the breeze with my friends laughing about the evening. But the difference is they were done drinking. They decided to stop. We had plans to wake up the next morning, go to the gym. So they stopped drinking. But I kept going. So the next morning rolls around. They went to the gym. And I said, nah, I think I'm going to sleep in for a little bit longer. So the nightcap after a night of heavy drinking started to become the norm more and more. And in my last semester of college, I remember driving down the freeway a couple times or, or on my way home and having my mind steer the car into a gas station parking lot or into a grocery store parking lot where I would buy alcohol and I would drink and study, drink and watch TV, drink and do whatever the hell I did, but I usually drank before I went to bed. And that's when the sleeping thing came in. And the alcohol, it made the whole sleeping thing a hell of a lot easier. But an interesting thing happened when I tried to go to sleep without alcohol was that I couldn't sleep. So guess what? I drank more. So I graduate college. Right after I graduate college, I'm thinking, what the hell do I do with my life? I had the genius idea, driven by the obsession to drink and party and be an entrepreneur, I decided it would be a good idea to buy a bar in Spain. So I move home save up nearly $25,000 by waiting tables and bartending at two restaurants, partying almost every night. And then I go back to Spain. I buy my favorite bar that we visited on the pub crawl and it's on. Now, a lot of things were happening before I even got to Spain that I weren't aware of happening. Number one was tolerance. 
My tolerance to alcohol was through the roof. I could drink anybody under the table. What I thought was a cool drinking trick, as well as my friends, was my alcoholism or the levels of THIQ in my brain increasing. Nobody ever knew if I was drunk. I wouldn't stutter. I wouldn't stumble. I would drink every bit under the table and be just fine. Blackouts, they were becoming more and more common. But even when I was blacked out, I wouldn't do anything stupid. Well, I don't think. And the consequences, they weren't that bad. A lot of hangovers. I'm sure there's a lot of unproductive mornings and days, but it was really okay. But looking back, I went to Spain to buy a bar as an alcoholic. Do you see a recipe for disaster here? And that's really exactly what happened. Spain precipitated my alcoholism. What I mean by that, if I had not have gone to Spain, which looking back on it, it was a blessing. Because had I not have gone to Spain, I would have become or really fully become an alcoholic in my late 30s, my 40s, and my 50s. Instead, that heavy amount of drinking fast-forwarded the process, so I had to deal with it in my late 20s and early 30s, given I'm going to be dealing with it my entire life. This is the constant reinforcement that John talks about in his interview later. But Spain just exacerbated the whole problem and fast. But I was in a major pickle in Spain. My identity was involved with Dolce Vita as the bar owner who owned a bar who filtered a ton of people into the clubs. And that's how it was set up. We were a pre-party bar. You got free shots if you danced at the table. There was a shot menu where you got tickets if you drank. So you took a shot and you got a ticket. If you had 10 tickets, you got a hat. If you had 100 tickets, you got a shirt. It was that simple. There were a copious amounts of shots taken. I remember even doing power hour, which is where you take a shot every minute, and then working a full six-hour shift after that. My friends, after doing power hour, and we weren't doing power hour with beer. We were doing it with sangria. You got to do it Spanish style here. They were shit-faced, but I went ahead and worked a six-hour shift while continuing to drink. Oh, yeah, going to a club after. Those are probably 20 to 30 to 40 drinks a night evenings. But then anxiety started to show up. Anxiety, I think, is your body's natural reaction saying, dude, Paul, what the F are you doing? You are killing yourself out here and your body, it's going to reject this. And that's what it started to do. I would feel extreme bouts of anxiety during the day. And the only remedy that I knew to get rid of it was with alcohol. But then you wake up, you're sober, the anxiety is there, you're hungover, you just feel like absolute shit. Until you take that first drink. So I continued this cycle till about 8 p.m. one night. I remember waking up that morning with so much anxiety. I was like, nope, this ain't happening. Chugged a bunch of hard alcohol, went back to bed. Woke up two hours later around noon with unbearable anxiety. Nope, this ain't happening. Crushed more alcohol, went back to bed. Three o'clock, five o'clock, eight o'clock. It was 8 p.m. I woke up with so much anxiety. I went to my roommate in Spain. I was like, dude, I, I, I gotta go. I'm out of here. Didn't really tell him exactly what was going on because sure, man, I mean, anxiety from alcohol, that, that's not normal. You'd be ashamed of that. Anyways, that's how I felt. I felt alone. I got into a cab. I went right to the hospital. I didn't know it was anxiety. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was in the cab, literally telling the guy, just like, go, 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 which is kind of like a bucket list, you know, telling me to run red lights. I'm having a heart attack. God damn it. Go to the, you know, the cab driver, maybe he did think I was having a heart attack because he went pretty damn fast to the hospital. Get to the hospital. I check myself in. And while I'm waiting, I see a payphone. 
I pump four or five euros in it. And guess who I call? My number one supporter, my mom. She picks up the phone and I just say, I can't beat this. She has no idea what the hell she's talking about, but I'm saying, I can't beat this. And it was a moment in my life where I was facing something I had never been able to beat or there wasn't a solution in front of me. I couldn't figure out how to beat this thing called alcohol. I was completely whipped. My butt was kicked. I could not beat alcohol. She's like, do I need to come out there on an airplane? I'm like, no, I'm at the hospital. I'll let you know, but I cannot beat this. I, I, I got to go. Go back in the back. They give me a Valium or a diazepam, whatever, which is basically like alcohol on a pill. I calm down, go back home, and that's it. But I decide I'm going to take a little break from alcohol. Two weeks is what I decide. Two weeks. Well, two weeks lasted, I think, three to four days. I make it to, I think, February, where I'm drinking so much, I'm just physically killing myself. I go down to the internet cafe, buy a one-way ticket home for like 400 bucks, and go back home to Colorado. I was done. But the geographical cure temporarily healed me. I was living at home, eating right, thanks mom, <laughs> got my old job back, was responsibly moderately drinking, shall we say, and I became invincible again just after three short weeks. So my pride and the I can do it, just do it, go ahead and go get them attitude, got the best of me, so I went back to Spain. And those last three months before I came back home for good were absolutely miserable. Now let me tell you about the amounts that I was drinking. For one, the night before when I was closing Dolce Vita, I would probably be 30 to 40 drinks deep. I was a functioning alcoholic. I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic at the time, but looking back, what the hell else was I? I was completely blacked out, but the next day I'd go to the bar. The register was counted perfect. The order was made. The, the floor was mopped. The chairs were on the table. I mean, everything was closed perfectly. And I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. I can do this while blacked out. But that's borrowed time. I'm drinking on borrowed time. That is all going to catch up to you, which it did. So I can't get an ounce of sleep without alcohol, not even a chance. Anxiety without alcohol, through the roof. So when I finish my shift at Dolce Vita, which I'm usually blacked out already, I fill up a small water bottle full of vodka. I go home probably 3 a.m. I chug the water bottle full of vodka, which is probably six, seven, eight shots. I don't, I don't know, it's like a 10 ounce, 12 ounce water bottle. I go to bed for about three hours. My brain, which is addicted to alcohol, the instant it hears the blinds go up across the street at 6 a.m., which is basically the neighborhood's mart. Once that store opens, I would walk down. I would get one box wine and two cans of beer, come back up to my apartment. I would chug the box of wine. I would empty the two cans of beer in two full glasses, put both the glasses in the microwave, microwave the beer, chug the beer, just so I could go back to bed. You're like, why would you microwave the beer? Well, it's harder to chug cold beer than it is to drink room temperature beer. Eh, what I found out at least. So within about 10 minutes, I had gone to the liquor store and already consumed two beers and a full box bottle of wine. Cool thing about that, I think it cost me like a dollar five. Europe's got some pretty cheap alcohol. And that was it. That would take me to about noon. I'd wake up around noon, roll around in my bed in agony with anxiety and physical pain. I think I had an ulcer at this time. My whole body hurt. I'd watch a couple DVD movies and just repeat process. I'd go back up to Dolce Vita, do the same thing over and over. That was a miserable hell. 
telling myself tonight will be different. I'm not going to fill up a water bottle full of vodka and drink it on my way home every single night. And then at the end of every shift, oh, guess what? It's closing time. Just instinct. I grab the bottle, fill it up with vodka and walk out the door. I remember my bouncer, Ruben, saw me doing that one time and he was like, whoa, 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 dude, what are you doing? If you keep that up, you're going to become an alcoholic one day. And I laughed and I was like, yeah, Ruben, whatever, bro. And I walked out. Ruben, my man, you were right. I decided I would stay till when school ended that year. There was a lot of college kids that went to our bar. So when school got out, it was a lot slower and I pieced out. Probably one of the smarter decisions I have ever done. Walked away from a lot of money. The bar was successful, have you not? There were shoeboxes full of euros underneath my bed at one point. So I walked away from my identity of a bar owner in Spain, realizing that death from alcohol consumption was probably right around the corner. Also, suicide was probably or definitely was right around the corner as well. I remember looking over the railing at the fifth story of my apartment, just looking down with my hands on the railing, just thinking, dude, just do this, man. Just just jump over this because you already called your mom. You can't beat this. The only way to beat this is just to jump. So that was it. I left. I gave the geographical cure for a while. I returned back to the States a full-blown alcoholic. But I've got a plan. I've got a plan to moderate. Grad school is on the horizon. All my problems, they're going to stay in Spain. Seriously, they are. So that will conclude the first of three parts of my story. Again, my story is no more important than anybody else's story. They're really all the same. We drink a shitload of alcohol, we get our asses kicked, but the lucky ones, including myself, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We get back up. We usually get back up fighting, which is the problem. We get back up trying to fight this thing, but you got to get back up and surrender. So before we get to John's interview, which this is a good one, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.sobernation.com. Once again, that's sobernation.com. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome John to the podcast. John, how are you? Doing great, Paul. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Now, John is from Indiana. He's a father of two. And John, I'm going to let you answer this first question. How long have you been sober? 103 days today, Paul. 103 days. Congratulations. Now, John has gotten sober without AA, and I'm interested to hear about how he did that, and we'll get into his program. But first off, John, let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Tell me about your elevator. When did you decide to quit drinking and why? Well, I actually have decided a few times, like most people, uh, to try to quit drinking and then had varying levels of success with, with doing so. Um, I had an extended period last year, as a matter of fact, where I was uh, off off the off the booze for about a hundred oh hundred thirty days or so. Um, I guess what really drove it was a combination of events uh, from health reasons. We had you know I had elevated liver enzymes to just the the emotional wear and tear that goes with drinking from from anxiety 
to to depression, to uh, just overall uh, manic behavior that comes with with you know you're up, you're down, you're drinking, you're not drinking, things like that. And uh, after a while, the, you know the downsides just really obviously started outweighing any of the upsides that I was feeling, and and finally got to a point where where I decided that that I was going to try sobriety. When you say anxiety, John, you're speaking my language there because anxiety, then the depression was my story in a nutshell. And it was the alcohol that real quickly, I mean, almost instantaneously made those symptoms go away. And talk to me about your drinking habits. Were you a binge drinker? Did you drink 30 drinks a day or did you drink a couple drinks a day? Talk to me about your drinking habits before you quit drinking. Well, first of all, I started probably when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old in high school, you know, just regularly kind of partying and then and then had a had a pretty prolific drinking career through college and early business life and 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 you know, ran and 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 to a large degree still do run with a fairly fast crowd of people that 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 all drank a lot. And uh, you know, through my early life, you would do it and, and probably drink a lot more on the weekends. And yes, it would be more of a binge drinking. I certainly went out to, to go out and, and have a good time. I wasn't drinking two or three and, you know, socially drinking. Uh, when I was going out to get my drink on, I was going out to get my drink on. So uh, in later in life, it's the same way. What, what ended up happening is, is with that is, is that that drinking on the weekends would start creeping into the weeknights. And all of a sudden, you know, you'd be having, you know, five or six or seven or eight on a Tuesday night or more, you know. And, and the bottom line is, is, is that my habit or my drinking habits are that when I think about drinking, I don't think about having two beers. I think about getting a buzz. I think about drinking and, and, and having a party night. And that's invariably where, where I would end up. And that didn't really matter much whether it was a Tuesday night or a Friday night. You use the word creeping. I love that verb because it's a great way to describe the progression of the disease alcoholism. And can you explain maybe a time in your life when you did realize this creeping? You're like, wait a second, I am starting to drink on a Monday night, on a Tuesday night. Was that a couple years ago? And 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 yeah, I mean, you're what are you in your thirties or forties? I'm, I'm actually I'm I'm actually fifty two years old. Fifty two. Okay. So when did and you I, observe this creeping behavior from alcohol? You know, even even as early as in my thirties it would start doing it. Um, you know, you would just start having more during the week, um, especially into my forties. Uh, I, I, I noticed that it was, that it was picking up. There was always an excuse to drink. Uh, or if I was going to, let's say, start on Thursday, which was my, what I used to call it was cycling. You know, it would be Thursday, Friday, Saturday would be the big party days starting with maybe golf and, and, and late on the afternoon on Thursday. And then, you know, it would be pretty much an early day on Friday from work and then Saturday and then maybe trying to, you know, 
take it easy on Sunday, well, that cycling would start creeping into maybe Wednesday night. Uh, you know, and the problem with that is, is the disruption lasted throughout the week. You know, I'd maybe stop or have a few on Sunday. Well, then what ended up happening is I'd be, I'd sleep terribly Sunday night. I'd be anxious and stressed out on, on Monday and, and have high levels of anxiety or whatever. Tuesday night, I would have a, a poor night of sleep, perhaps. You know, finally, I'd get a good night of sleep on, on Wednesday night, and then I'm back to drinking on Thursday. So the whole thing would start over. And again, when you're talking about drinking levels, just for people out there, you're absolutely talking about, you know, probably, you know, 15 to 20 drinks in, in a given day or in an evening. You know, it, it just would, 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 those, those would creep in also over a round of golf or, or a little pre-party. You'd have five or six drinks and then you'd segue into the evening. And, and before you know it, you've consumed a lot of booze. Or I should say I've consumed a lot of booze. I love the way you describe the cycling part of it because it used to be for me, sure, we'd wait till five o'clock at five and then you'd shut it down Saturday night around midnight or two or three in the morning. But like you said, it becomes a Thursday night thing and then you That's shut right. it down Sunday night after the football games or whatnot. But then like you know, your sleep on Monday, you don't get good sleep. You're, you're, you're struggling on Monday and then come Thursday, all you can think about is that drink. And pretty soon where I got is the entire week was just unproductive and just totally hindered by alcohol, right? Absolutely. And a preoccupation with it. And I can actually remember the time in my early 30s or in my mid-30s probably that I actually started having these occurrences on a Sunday night when I would not drink during Sunday that I would actually doze off to sleep for an hour, an hour and a half, whatever it was, and then boom, wake up and with just a high anxiety level or a skin crawling type feeling and not be able to go back to sleep. And, and the reason was is for the past three or four nights, I think, you know, the, the sleep had been induced by by alcohol and then it wasn't there and then it would take me a day or two to get over that and again then you're back onto the, the, the what I would call the cycling you know the, the drinking and you said a word preoccupation I'm gonna just use the word obsession because that's what preoccupation in my mind means I had an obsession for alcohol and did you notice with the word creeping that this preoccupation increased over time as, as you got later in your 40s and your 50s Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the thing about it is, and, and we'll talk about quitting later and things like that and, or moderation or, or, or anything along those lines is, is that any time that door's open to, well, if I'm going to drink tomorrow and it's Thursday, then what, what hurts if, what does it hurt if I have some drinks on Wednesday night? And that internal dialogue and debate that goes on is a preoccupation and it's just, it's just taxing quite frankly, and, 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 you know, would consume a lot of my time just making a decision or wrestling with the idea of, well, I guess I can go out and have a few drinks on Wednesday. And then, you know, you'd end up feeling kind of crappy Thursday and then Friday and, and, and on and on. So tell me about those conditional plans. I guess I'll go out and have a few drinks on Wednesday. It sounds like that's a plan to moderate. Did that ever work for you? No, not really. And, and, and again, you know, it, it would, it, with varying levels of, of success. And, and for a while I smoked when I was younger too, and you would combine the two of those. And it was, it was typically once I started, I didn't stop until I went to bed. And matter of fact, that was almost always the case. It was, it was not something where I would, I would start at five and then end up shutting down at seven or seven thirty. I would start at five. And not that I would have to just absolutely hammer back 
you know, 15 drinks on a Wednesday night, but I would sit there and drink until I went to bed. And then, you know, when you're 24 years old or something, you can probably weather that pretty well. When you're, when you're 38, it becomes a lot more difficult to do so. John, I got to say, congratulations. It sounded like you had a lot of inner turmoil. You have, you know, emotional things going on, anxiety, depression, manic behavior, but congratulations. It sounds like you got off your elevator before the yets really started happening. What I mean is maybe you have a DUI, but like, you know, before the jail happened, hasn't happened yet before this, you know, the liver enzymes really increased to liver failure yet. So congratulations. Are, do you feel the same way on that? Like you've dodged a bullet? To a certain degree, yes. Let me just have full disclosure here. I did have a DUI when I was when, a lot younger, probably in my early 20s. I've certainly engaged in, in, in high-risk behavior due to, due to drinking. And obviously, even going to the doctor and being told that you have elevated liver enzymes, I was told that for years and years before I quit. So it's okay. amazing the amount of risk that you'll take on when it comes or that I will take on when it comes to drinking that I would never assume in any other part of my life for, for any other for any other type of activity, whether it's work or whether it's it's home life or financial uh, stability or something like that, uh, I, I would tend to be more conservative when it comes to drinking. It's it's you know Katie bar the door, uh, you know I'll engage in all sorts of crazy behavior. John, tell me about that. I can tell you are an extremely intelligent man. You're a business owner. You've got it going on upstairs. But it sounds like you've been told for years you have had increased liver enzymes. How is that, like you said, if this were a financial you know, financial issue and you were told this is going to happen, if you continue to do this, you probably would have stopped. How weird is that, that we just keep drinking even though there will be direct health repercussions? The only thing that I can equate it with is that what 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 you hear from your recovery podcasts, what you hear from a recovery elevator, what you hear from people that are out there that have quit before is this is not an intellectual problem. This is not something that you can solve the way I would solve a business problem. Um, this this is rooted much deeper in in, in our psyche and our soul and and has to be treated as such. It's a behavioral issue, and those issues can find a way to, to, to outsmart your brain every time if you don't address those first. Not an intellectual issue. I love it. I just wrote that down, and that's going to be in the blog post. It's going to accompany this podcast, Recovery Elevator Episode 30. So, John, I'm excited to hear how have you done it. You don't go to AA meetings, or I don't know if you've ever been, but tell me about your program. How have you made it to 103 days sober? Well, I'll, I'll tell you ex exactly how I how I started doing it and, and making the uh, the adjustment. Was the first thing that I did was get online and really do a lot of research and listen to podcasts and read blogs. Recovery Elevator, the AA speaker tapes, uh, the Bubble Hour, the, uh, 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 oh, Unpickled, I know is, is another one. Uh, there's, there's a lot of them out there. The Sober Lawyer, I'm, and I apologize, I'm probably leaving people out and, and, I, and I don't intend to, but there's a lot of information out there for people. And the first thing that does is connect you up with people that have gone through similar situations and also ideas for recovery and ideas for dealing with recovery 
so that you don't feel alone. Because one of the biggest problems with trying to do it is you're constantly second-guessing yourself and you're constantly rationalizing. And when you hear other people or you read what other people are writing about the fact that they've gone through the same thing, and it is bullshit, you know, and, and that you can put it in that perspective and understand that that other people have lied to themselves in these manners or other people have faced the same obstacles or here's some here's some tricks of the trade for getting your mind off off of off of drinking. Um, that's extremely helpful and, and probably in the biggest part is just the idea of being able to get the belief that you can do it because other people have done it. And and although I've never attended AA, that's one of the benefits that I think that everyone would, would find from there, and I certainly have thought about it myself, is the idea of being in with a group of like-minded individuals and being able to draw upon that experience and being able to draw upon the successes from that uh, is, is, I'm sure, very beneficial. But that's, that was my first step. My second step of doing it was, quite frankly, making a decision that and coming to the decision uh, that the you know it was time to get off that elevator, that the good certainly did outweigh the bad in in a lot of ways, and there was a lot of list making and soul searching and decision making and discussions with my wife to the point where it was like, "Look, I am making irrational decisions, I am behaving in a manner that's that's not consistent with my values, and obviously there's some some things that are driving that that I don't fully understand, and i've got to, and I've got to be able to arrest that problem. So that was the, the second part was really coming to an understanding that it was going to be something that, that I do and that I attack. And then the third part of it, quite frankly, was shifting those habits from drinking into other areas, health, healthy eating, meditation, um, work, community service, things like that. And, and that was a huge part of it is to Get away from and distract yourself from that huge void that you're going to find in your life immediately when you stop drinking. And even things like video games or, or reading or mindless TV, whatever it might be, there, I, I hear all sorts of suggestions out there on the on the net and the, the web in in blogs about how people just divert themselves from it. So that's been the that that's been the biggest part of it. And then the last part of it is constant reinforcement of what the what the benefits of not drinking are. And that's a huge part of it, Paul, is that is is giving thanks every day for what I receive from not drinking. It's so easy to just sit there and focus on that grass being greener of I wish I could drink because or I can't believe I can't drink because or wouldn't it be great to drink because of this without focusing on, yeah, that's great, but I've dropped 30 pounds in 90 days and I run six miles four times a week and I, and I, you know, my, my business is going better than it has for a long time and my relationships improved, you know, exponentially with my children and, and things like that. You, you forget all those things. Those get tidied away into a, into a box and you focus on what you don't have. And I think it's very important to be able to reinforce the positives and be thankful for what you do have through sobriety. And I try to do that every day. John, I've done a lot of interviews. I've heard a lot of programs. And the majority of times when I talk to somebody who's gotten sober without AA, they tell me their program. And the majority of their program is simply not putting a bottle filled with alcohol to their lips. And in the end, that just means you're a dry drunk. But John, I got to tell you, you've pretty much hit all the bullet points that tells me you understand this thing. Let me just 
let me just recap a couple of things that you said from the start. So you said the preoccupation of drinking. It's not an intellectual thing. You went about this with a pragmatic approach. First off, you went with the information, with the blogs. Put yourself in touch with other alcoholics. That's basically the 12th step of AA or the last step in all of those step programs. You've talked about a shift of habits, meditation. You worked on your sleeping, working, your eating habits, putting routines in your life, even picking up smaller habits or or smaller tasks, hobbies to consume your life. But the end thing you said that really sold me on your program, John, is the constant reinforcement. And tell me about your constant reinforcement a little bit more. Well, first of all, it involves prayer and prayers of thanks. It involves um, a journal that I that I keep regarding the things that that are positive uh, in my life and and that are brought about by by not drinking, and then tracking, you know, in that journal individual accomplishments or or individual triumphs from a day. It's amazing how many things happen, and and I've touched on this even, you know, as people that struggle with this, Paul, notoriously, man, we are hard on ourselves. We beat ourselves up so badly because we are flawed people. And, and, I, and I get that. We are. We also happen to be, and I read these blog entries and I read people that post on your, on your website, on your Facebook page, these people that do these amazingly service-oriented, generous, heroic things on a daily basis, you know, to combat something that is in varying levels a disease and very hard to, to fight. And they fight it valiantly every day. And then they will come back and, and I know that we're selfish and I know that we do certain things uh, or, or they will, or somebody will relapse and it's like, I know how horrible they feel and it just, it, it just hurts me when I see it. And yet I look at that and I think of all the people that are actually proactively working on things, improving their life, improving the world, improving the people around them, taking ownership for their issues and really fighting it. You know, we really need to focus on our successes and not focus on the failures because there's going to be failures in anything that's worth doing and anything that you're going to be successful with. You're going to fail at it a few times, maybe a lot of times before, before you end up, you know, winning. And I think that that's, that's the biggest thing is trying to maintain those positive outlooks and and focusing on the things that that are actually accomplishments and not the things where where I fail at because trust me there's a long list of those also my friend being an entrepreneur myself and you're a business owner yourself there are a lot of business takeaways that can be applied to sobriety like number 1 you want to fail fast and it's only a failure if you don't learn from it right and when right. you do fail no big deal. We're going to relapse. That's not everybody's story, but it's part of mine. It sounds like it's part of yours, but you've got to celebrate the victories. That's right. Yeah. And John, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready to answer these five questions? I hope so, Paul. Let's do it. John, what was your worst memory from drinking? Blackouts. Not not remembering the night before, even if I walked out of a restaurant or a meeting or, or, or a party and 
seemed to be okay. I would wake up the next morning and still not remember events from the night before what I said. And then also coupled with that was probably, you know, a deteriorate relationship or, or giving up things that I would do with my kids in lieu of, of lieu of drinking because the two don't mix. You can't be carting your kids around doing things, you know, while you're out drinking a lot of times. So um, it was sacrificing that time. Worst memory is the loss of memory. I hear oh, you. Yeah. Ugh. And next question, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Well, I guess my biggest, you know, if there's something that I was going to add to what I'm doing now, it's going to find, it's going to be to probably make some connections with some like-minded people to people in, in recovery and, and get some more socialization around that. I lack a little bit with that. AA is still a question mark for me. I don't, I don't write it off. I don't dislike AA. It's just something I haven't really pursued. Uh, and then, again, just focusing on thankfulness, exercise, goals, prayer, you know, service, and meditation are, are, the, are the big ones for me. John, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Uh, recovery elevator, Paul. There's your, there's your shameless plug. You're, you're good. The recovery, the, you know, the recovery radio network's okay. great. Okay. The AA meetings on air from Wellington are, are, are fabulous. Listening to that. What I really like about that is the fact that you're listening to people going through the same struggles almost exactly, you know, half a world away from us in, in New Zealand. Um, Rich Roll's a good one. I know. I don't know if people listen much of that, but 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 those items are all. And then you know, probably my, my one of my biggest favorite resources is is uh, you know my my faith. John, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Quit fe- quit feeling guilty about not drinking. Quit wearing yourself out for the fact that 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 other people may be uncomfortable around the fact that you're not drinking is, is a huge one that I have to, you know, I got some very pointed advice by somebody who had quit drinking in terms of that. Quit feeling guilty about not drinking. John, I've never heard that. And I love it. Man. It's, it's a, it's a huge one. We all do. You read about it all the time. People wrestle with it all the time, Paul. They feel uncomfortable about making people uncomfortable. We, we apologize. It seems like we apologize all the time for doing something that, that ends a destructive behavior and, and, and does nothing but add positive to our lives. Man, it's like the whole, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. That, that's how exactly. I feel about it now. Exactly. I love it. Last question, John. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Well, first of all, if you're thinking about quitting drinking and you're thinking about it a lot and it's weighing on you, then I would research it more because you probably need to quit drinking. If, 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 if you've taken it upon yourself to do that self-exploration, more so than anyone else telling you that, then, then you probably need to do it. Number one. Number two, alcoholism or problems with alcohol or problem drinking comes in all different shapes and sizes. It's not all the same thing. It's not the, the stereotypical person on a park bench. It's not the high-powered executive. It's not the, the, the person that's you know out of control. It can be somebody that leaves a very conservative lifestyle that you would never expect. Um, number three, you're not alone. There are millions of us out there in all walks of life that, that span the spectrum just like the regular, you know, the rest of the human population. And the last three things, the last two things are because you do this, you're not a bad person. This does not make you a bad person. It just makes you a person that's got a, a disease, makes you a person that's got a problem, and both of them can be at least put into remission. And uh, 
you can get better. People get better. People beat this thing. It does happen, and it happens a lot. Just because you relapse doesn't mean you cannot get back on it and get success in the future. Don't give up on it. John, I love every interview that I give, but I got to tell you, you knocked this one out of the park. I'm serious, man. Maybe it's just the mood I'm in today. I was taking my own notes furiously. You would stop talking, and I'd be like, oh, oh, I, I could stop writing and pay attention that I'm giving this interview. So I, I, I got to say thank you, John. Thank you well, for I helping hate, me I hate, stay sober. I hate, to say, I, hate to, I hate to have to admit that I'm an expert on the subject, on this subject, but, <laughs> but you know, maybe that's what it indicates. But, but, uh, but thank you, Paul. Hey, listen, man, I appreciate your podcast a ton. I appreciate all the input from the people that are on your Facebook page. It's amazing, and it's been a huge help and inspiration to me. So thank you so much for what you've done, and congratulations to you on your year of sobriety. That's an amazing feat, and that, that, that's year. an inspiration also. <laughs> One year, fantastic. Come join me, John. You're going to be in the I club am. soon, I'm buddy. on my way. All right, John, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. Cheers. Like I say at the end of John's interview, he knocked it out of the park. The majority of the people I talked to, including myself, circa two and a half years sober in 2012 and 13, they're just dry drunks. When they, they're like, you know, I don't like AA. I want to get sober. John didn't say he didn't like AA, but you get the point. Because I was that person. I was like, you know, I, I've never been to AA. You know, that, that, that's not for me, but but I'm, I'm still sober. I was just a dry drunk. But John, he said everything to me. That tells me that he gets it. Most importantly, that constant reinforcement, that constant one day at a time that I'm telling myself out loud to you guys, but it's also my own constant reinforcement that I am an alcoholic, that my addiction in my head, if I ignore this constant reinforcement, will eventually come back and talk to me and say, you know what, Paul, we just got a year of sobriety. We can just knock off this whole podcast business and moderately drink. What do you think of that idea, Paul? I mean, shoot, there is a brand new brewery that was built 38 yards away from your front doorstep. Let's go check it out. The parking lot is packed every day. All right, I've gone on too far with this with this circumimaginative process in my head called with my addiction, but you get the point. So, Recovery Elevator, a big thank you to you guys, the private accountability group. But you're not a part of it, you gotta join. It's a product that I believe in. I use it every day. Helps me stay sober. Molly Churchill, Perry Churchill, Mark Churchill. I'm the luckiest guy in the world to have a family like you guys. Thank you so much for getting me here. And if you're not here to the one-year mark yet, come join me. you got to get here. Let me help you get here. I want for you guys what I want for myself. Don't get this year sobriety mark or one month or six months out of fear. You got to want this. You got to want this for a better life. Of course, I'm fearful if I know what will happen if I start drinking again. It's a whole lot of yets. I will get behind the wheel of a car again drunk. I could kill somebody. That's just a yet if I start drinking again. So Recovery Elevator, thank you so much. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.